0: And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here.
1: Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario mm. where we are using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe. Yep. Yeah. I, got, uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him. He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't he? Yeah. Mm.
2: Absolutely. Canon Dynamics.
1: Yeah. And then- my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did you get that from? I got that from Ironswick Dog Quip.
2: Not the old bullfed. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Ironswick Dog Quip. IronswickDogQuip.com. And, and it all went perfectly. Yep. So I- How'd you reward the dog? I'm I, very interested.
1: Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, Yep. I gave the
2: dog some Brights Bites. Oh, good call. Yep. Brights Bites. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> You've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there.
1: Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, Yep. Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, mine's with Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats, you're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than Bright Spot. Absolutely. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co host, Glenn Cook. And joining us in the studio is the boys from Red Team, who you'll remember Glenn went and did some training with down in Canberra. Andrew Mm -hmm. and Q. Hi. Good day. Good morning.
2: Yeah. So we've got Andrew and, or Coey and Q, joining us on the podcast today. I wanted to bring the guys in and have a chat with them because I did a course with them. I was fortunate enough to be asked to come and help the boys deliver their course. Uh, They do a lot of government training, which we're going to talk to them about. But one thing that I found really, really interesting, if you recall back to when Pat and I did the podcast a while ago, is I've been around a lot of teaching where I've taught dogs for many, many years to do a lot of different applications. And scent detection's always been something that I've had an interest in and I've been involved in, in quite a few things, which I've also been fortunate enough to have a background in. But the difference for me was getting involved with an area that I have no knowledge or very little knowledge and and little expertise on, and that is the actual chemistry side of it. So when I actually got to sit down, and watch the boys do what they've been specifically trained in and have a expertise in like I literally sat there for a week with my jaw open just listening to what was going on and, and what you were delivering to be honest that's probably the tip of the iceberg in your career so let's talk about you guys individually and then let's talk about how you actually came together to form red team because there's some other stuff I want to talk to you about Q a a little bit later because you've actually got an assistance dog yourself so this is not just purely chemistry or, or electronics related this is actually dog related and this is how we all got together because you're delivering to agencies with a lot of dog work as well. So let's start with you, Coey, and we'll talk a little bit about your background and, you know, what you have done as a profession and how it led to this.
0: Yeah, sure. The most logical place to start, I guess, is a little bit about our background. So I'll give you the blurb that we often start our courses with. We're very much an odd couple.
2: True.
0: (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm from an officer background in the army. And Q is from an Air Force background as an enlisted soldier. Mm -hmm. So our paths crossed militarily a couple of times, but we never really worked all that closely. I'm from an engineering background. I did some very basic training in bomb disposal, what they call EOD. Mm -hmm. And I worked a little bit in our training institutes. My mum's a teacher, my dad's an engineer, so I'm kind of a blend of those. Mm -hmm. I, I studied chemistry at uni. So that was my background. And Q is more... The electronics side of the house, but very much hands on background and experience. Around 2012, I got out of the permanent army. I started doing a bit of consulting stuff and uh, started dabbling in HME and electronics. So, HME is homemade explosives. Yep. Q was still in the military, got around out around 2015, and he came to me with a business idea of building uh, training aids for the military. So, we built a bunch of stuff based on what they're. Training outcomes are. So that's how Red Team started in 2015. And we didn't know it at the time, but we'd gotten into the industry of public safety. And our clients are 99% military or law enforcement, mm. which is, you know, conventional Army, Navy, Air Force. So government. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. A uh, little bit of special operations, a little bit of state police, federal police. That's what it's turned into. We didn't know it at the time. And it sort of just went from there. We thought we'd heading in one direction and then we've sort of come back in a different direction. But I would say we're a blend now of my chemistry background, you know, as boring as it is, someone needs to do the business administration and all the books and fun stuff that comes with mm-hmm. running a business and advertising and BD and all that that sort of stuff. And Q brings a lot more of the creativity, the electronics, the experimentation, the reading, Mm. research, all that stuff. And we blend it together in bespoke lessons for bespoke clients. So, you know, an imprinting course for the federal police for their canines or teaching some basic x-ray stuff to the military. Mm. Um, And we have a range of packages and a range of clients. But in a nutshell, that's where we're at now
2: actually amazing where this job has actually taken you to like when i got to know you guys because i've known q you did the ndtf course q yep. and we'll get to you in a minute but you know i hadn't met you before coey i've heard of you through q but it's actually amazing where this job has taken you because when we were sort of sitting in the living room in canberra and having a chat and ha- having a beer at after work and getting to know each other, you guys were showing me pictures of when you were working in the Maldives and so forth. So it's not just something that you're doing in our own territory. You've gone offshore and done this work as well for other government agencies.
0: This is a huge cliche to say, but we've had job opportunities come up from areas that we thought, where did this come from? How did we get asked to do this? Mm. Um, Papua New Guinea and the Maldives, and there's certain government organizations that work in security that you know, but they're not a very public group. Uh, have asked us to look at certain things and help with certain things, and there are often times where we pinch ourselves and go, "How the hell did we get this piece of work?" And it's great, a very enjoyable work, mm-hmm. um, and we're very lucky to have it. But it's a weird journey that we've been on mm. just in the last five
2: years. You wouldn't make it up. And Q, give us a bit of a background on yourself.
3: Well, I did that thirty years in the military. Started out as an aircraft technician and. I guess really the the hard part is I have trouble focusing on one thing and staying with one thing. Mm -hmm. So going through that 30-year career, like as Andrew said, I was in the Air Force but I ended up being a soldier by the end of it. And that was in the later part of my career. But going from being an aircraft technician to a bomb disposal technician, so I was the foot on the ground to do the bomb disposal work and got to get some real hands-on experience in that over the time But we're leading into with the dog part with that is working as a bomb disposal technician, you had a a dog in your team and watching the handler work the team, work the dog in the team and how that fitted into what was my role of getting rid of what the dog found. Mm. And I took that away when I came back from my last rotation, decided to have six months off work with the plan to leave the military and I got myself a little Springer Spaniel and... Uh, imprinted at her so i got a working line springer and living in a terrace house in sydney knew that i'm going to need to keep this dog stimulated and use nose work as a way of doing that Mm. and started with currency with her and that was what started me in the journey of trying to understand more about what the dog's doing and a touch on with your uh, where you're going with assistance dogs Uh, when i did get out i did have an anxiety experience and going through that understanding how my brain worked at the time mm. and being a technical person, I like to pull things apart, which meant I wanted to pull my brain apart and go and research it. That taught me a lot more about what you call learning theory in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then we started imprinting, like providing imprinting odours for dogs in the count ID space. And I realised that there was no one in the business with a dog training background. So I went and did the NDTF so we could have that on our resume and that's where we cross paths. Mm. And that also made me realise that we there's not much difference between our brain and their brain and we all learn the same way. And that's really what came through with those lessons that you see this present, which is my crazy inability not to stop learning myself.
2: Well, it's the interesting thing about learning theory, isn't it? That we regularly and always say, if anybody's been listening to the show long enough, that the learning theory that we have and understand about dogs was developed so we could learn more about ourselves, mm. you know, back in the time of the behaviorists and so forth, it was unethical to experiment on people. I mean, I'm sure they did mm. um, behind closed <laughs> doors, but, um, <laughs> <did>. <laughs> is that politically correct to say that? No, probably not. <laughs> I mean, even Pavlov was known for his experimentation on orphan children and so forth. I mean, it's documented on YouTube. You can see, you know, children eating through a tube as a conditioned reflex. So it's a long myth that these people just did it because they wanted to learn about animals and animal behavior, but they weren't. They were learning how to control the human mind. This is a precursor leading on to more advanced studies and, and further knowledge of that sort of thing. So, yeah, it is. it's, it's a rabbit hole and it's very fascinating.
0: Also, what I've found on my journey is that there's so much connectivity between things that you would assume are different streams of knowledge. So when we first started doing training for the AFP, for example, for their canine teams, we're dealing with very experienced police officers and very experienced canine teams. Mm. And we would start covering topics on chemistry. And as an outsider looking in, you would go, well, why does a dog handler need to know anything about sulfuric acid or you know, the principles of chemistry. And then the more we got into it, the more we helped them understand why how this is related. Oh, if if there's spilt sulfuric acid on the floor, how's that going to affect my dog when I'm working? And all these things. And and the more that we got into it, the more we, we found that fields that weren't necessarily important to clients originally, all of a sudden they start to, you know, the, you're scratching the surface and, mm. and they're sort of going, oh, well, that's actually, you know, I remember I did a job and I saw that there and What does this mean? And then you get further and further along that path and everything's connected. What makes our company so interesting is you can't be an expert at everything. I am never going to catch up to where Q is at with electronics and and dog knowledge. I have university training in chemistry. So Q would be spending a lot of time to catch up that pre-learning as well. And we wouldn't try and replicate your knowledge in canine, which is why we use people to support us. Yeah,
2: that's Um, why we all call each other together. You know, I mean, that's the idealism of joining forces with people and bringing in experts. I mean, it's the same thing when you go to court, you know, like if you're an expert witness in something that happened or a particular scenario, this is why you get called in to give evidence against the case or for the case. Um, And it's the same thing with training. There's no point in saying that you're the bastion of all knowledge, which is a mistake that people often make, is that they assume that they know everything and it's all-encompassing. Whereas there's so many things, I mean, there's tons of stuff I don't know about dog training. I regularly make a point of saying to people when they come to me for certain fields is that's not my field. Whereas I probably would when I was younger, I'd probably say, oh yeah, I'll just have a crack. I'll have a go at it and see how we end up on this. But as you become a little wiser or if you ever do become a little wiser, you start to see well, that's actually a big problem in your own personality and what you're delivering because you'll come unstuck with things like that. So you're better off calling in someone who's got some expertise in it.
1: Something you just said then, Coey, about the deliverables that you give to courses and and, uh, how it sometimes seems irrelevant but actually very much is, like over-delivering information, I suppose. I think that's an interesting thing to unpack a little bit, especially when you're dealing with police and military dogs and that sort of thing. So people listening would be like, these guys aren't detection dog handlers. Why would we be interested And in And why do we need to know that extreme depth of knowledge on certain things? Mm. I think it's a little bit the same of, uh, you know, you give someone a fish and you, you feed them for a day and you teach them to fish and you feed them for life. And I think sometimes in the dog world, us as handler, as trainers of dogs, uh, before you, you know, ultimately hand that dog over to a handler, or if you are just training a dog team together, it can be really easy to go, just here's step one, step two, step three. And so long as their career only ever involves step one, step two, step three, that sees them in good stead forever. And for lots of people that will only ever do that, it's when there's a step two and a half, right? Or or there's a step B. And then it's like, okay, I have this picture of knowledge. I know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm not just doing these steps, one, two, three. I know why I'm going through this sequence. And so maybe today I'm going to do three, two, one or or whatever it is, right? So I think for the people listening, that's kind of you know, what we've got you guys here for is to understand that, that what you're providing is not surface level knowledge, right? Mm. This is extreme detail stuff. And anybody that's interested in what you're doing, this is when for people who are looking to take their understanding of odour and that sort of thing to a, at the next level, right? Am I am, I right, am I on the right track with that?
0: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. When it comes to policing and military, they are, are very different applications, but the dog handler in the context of the people we train is often the first person in the room, in the building, on scene, up front. Now, if you're going to give them a bit more knowledge so that they can start to understand the picture earlier on, you, you're enabling decision-makers and commanders at at different levels, the edge to get ahead in time and space of the problem. Mm -hmm. And to go back to something you said initially, we teach the best we think, you know, the best method or the best uh, delivery style for that subject matter. And the person learns it and, you know, in accordance with the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, they'll retain 10%, 20% a year later, depending on what they've done on the job and study. After a period of time, they'll come back and look at, they may look at that lesson material and they will understand it, but in a different way from perhaps how they did when you taught it. Or they may come back to the original material and go, for me, that was a terrible way of teaching because I don't learn like that. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult for us because we have to balance all that for different people, different learning styles. Mm. And also some people just don't get it until they've seen it a hundred times. Um, put it into practice, then they'll come back and go, oh, your lesson made so much more sense now that I've done it for real. Or counter to that, we'll teach something and we'll have experienced guys in the room go, I remember I had some military guys and I, I taught some basic explosive precursors stuff. And uh, one of these guys said, to, he, he was working in military exploitation in the Middle East and he said to me, you know, in one hour, you've just explained some stuff that I was working on for six months overseas and never got an answer to.
1: Right. Just because he didn't have that, he didn't know where to look. No access to it, yeah.
2: I think one of the amazing things that I took away when I did your course was watching the guys work and watching you teaching the fundamentals of identification of what you're walking into. I'll give you an example. When we were doing some of the case studies, and you were actually getting the guys to like when we had the the building set up, and you had everything situated around the room, you're teaching the guys, you know, like you're actually walking into a HMA, a homemade explosive scene, not a drug lab. And for anybody who's uneducated or hasn't had that type of training, they might not actually know what they're walking into. As you said, you might make the mistake of walking in there and thinking, oh, this is a drug lab even though they shouldn't, they might touch things or knock things over and we might be dealing with volatile explosives. So if you're teaching the guys to be the sharp end of the sword, they can walk in there and, you know, while the dog is doing the detection work, uh, the team can actually go, oh, shit, I'm I'm in an explosives nest right now. And for me, that was a real takeaway moment, but also quite terrifying to realise that the two can be so identical with what you're looking at in a chemistry setup. But as both of you guys were showing them, there are significant things that you can look at straight away and think, yeah, I know exactly what I'm on, how long the person's been here or what their intentions are actually doing based on what I can see around a few key indicators around the room. So for me, that was absolutely mind-blowing.
0: And it all goes back to why we do what we do, which is to enhance public safety.
2: Absolutely. That,
0: that's what we do. And, yeah. and at the end of the day, whether you're a bomb disposal guy doing something with a you know potential bomb, a dog handler a forensic chemist whatever your occupation is wherever you are the safety part is first and foremost keeping yourself safe so the most important part is the dog handler can go into the real world and keep themselves safe on the job mm. oh, I'm not just this guy isn't just making his own homebrew I think he's doing A B and C this is beyond my pay grade but I know enough to know that it's beyond my pay grade
1: yeah. so yeah I think identification of that that's something I used to think about quite a bit uh, when I was in the army And now in a dealing with explosive uh, detection dogs, I don't regularly, but when I do is the identification of IED type stuff because you think that handler, like you're not expected to know a great Mm. deal about IEDs, but you're there if your dog finds it, or if you even see your dog working a your scent cone, you get a look at an IED or somewhere or another, you're the first eyes on and you're going to give that information to the person who ultimately has to deal with it. And you can minimize like your risk profile is what it is at that point. You've seen it, you're in the presence of it. The more you know about it, the more good, useful information you can give to the EOD tech who is actually going to have to deal with it, right? So I think that's an interesting thing. A lot of explosive detection handlers sort of go like, no, I have the dog and, it's that, totally, job. it's someone else's job, mm. you know, and, and yeah. most explosive detection handlers, you know, as soon as their dog, if they ever see their dog working a scent cone, they're like, I'm out of here. Yeah. We don't need an actual condition final response. If you're smelling explosives, I don't need you to tell me exactly where it is. That's some other chump's problem, right? Mm. Yeah. But what information you can give that chump is helpful to him. So he's going to determine what gear he takes and blah, blah, blah. Like how big's his radius going to be? His, his, his cordon and all those sorts of things are going to be relevant and that can come from the the first eyes of the dog handler.
3: The other part with that training initially trying to get them across is, like we're talking a lot about the handler, is the dog team safety. Mm -hmm. So like we touched on it a bit with the acids and that sort of thing. Uh, So you can identify what are the threats about sending my dog downrange to go and do that or go into that room. Is it safe for it? Um, For example, I burn myself with peroxide to show what happens on a peroxide burn, what's a dog going to do when it's burnt hmm it's going to lick it it's poor and now you've lost your capability mm-hmm. by you not managing the safety environment for your dog when it looks like water on the ground
2: mm-hmm. yeah a lot of that stuff was really fascinating and you're absolutely right, Pat. One of the things, Thanks, Glenn. That <laughs> <laughs> one of the many things I should say that I did take away from it was that you were educating a lot of the handlers to be more of an investigator. You know, like if you've got the capability to go in and start taking some mental or, or you know, taking some pictures or quickly writing some things down if you're reporting it to your team, rather than just walk in the room, do do a sweep with a dog, and then walk out, they can go in and say, "Oh, hang on a sec, there's some." cues in the room that really need to be discussed before you guys go in there. Because, I mean, with so many of these things, let's remove explosives and everything like that. But in any dangerous situation, as much information as you can get out to people, that can help not only save your own life, but their life and countless amounts of other people, so they're not just walking in the room blind. And I really appreciated all that because I think it just gives entirety to what you're actually trying to teach rather than just say, all right, we'll just take the dog in and we'll just do a few sweeps of the room. Like it actually gives them scope to think, okay, now I'm here with the dog. I can start looking around a little bit and feed it outside to the specialists who are going to need to come in and disarm or whatever they need to do.
0: Pat and I were talking before we started. When you come from the military, you've been recruited into a job and generally that job is to do A, B, and C, and it may change throughout your career. Mm. But there are very few people that are recruited into the military as teachers. Yep. It's a different skill set. You're looking for different metrics in the personal trait of whoever it is. So getting out of the military and becoming more or less a teacher, it's all good if you understand the subject matter yourself or you're learning it, you're getting better at it. But if you can't get someone else to understand the basics of what you're talking about, then- what are you doing? Mm. And for us, uh, we're relearning how to work in an adult learning environment. And and it is not what I thought it was. Certainly my appreciation of how do I get this person to understand? And if they don't, how do I change tact? That's its own set of challenges, regardless of what you're trying to teach and who, Mm. you know, it's common across, across any of that. Mm. So when it comes to the handler, the animal, What environment are they in? You know, you're trying to appreciate what's this person's day job. What are they going to be good at? What analogies can I use? What jokes can I use? Mm. How do I set this scenario up that that's realistic? You're always, and this is where the name red team comes from. We try and get into the mind of the, the opponent, the adversary, the enemy, whatever you want to call them. And create environments bespoke to whoever we're trying to teach to really maximise the opportunity for learning. Mm-hmm. To, to create that as as realistic as possible, and that's had its come with its own challenges as well. We certainly have had a few disagreements about what what we think. <laughs> I'm would always be the right, best. though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Senior enlisted is always right. <laughs> and remember that. so it's a tricky conversation we're having because a lot of what you guys do is not really in the public space and this is a totally public podcast and and the overwhelming majority of our listeners are not military military mm -hmm. people right they're dog training enthusiasts tell us something shocking about dogs that people might not know particularly if you're going to talk about odor or something like that
3: Probably the biggest thing for me in entering this space with odor with the dogs, was starting off with my own dog in training currency and I put the human mindset on thinking that I'm going to give my dog a $5 note it's going to find all my notes mm-hmm. and to find that that wasn't real. Mm-hmm. So forgetting, and that's what I find when we are working with another animal apart from a human, we think as a human, not as that animal. And what is that world of that? that or how does that animal experience the world? Yeah, And that's something that in, uh, like the way we deliver our training for the dogs is we have Andrew do the technical chemistry stuff. And I'll attempt to cover technical information on how animals work. Mm-hmm. And to try to get the handler out of that mindset of I'm six feet tall, so my nose is sitting up here, but I see the world through my eyes. But this dog is now only uh, less than half a metre off the ground with its nose one centimetre off the ground smelling, and that's Mm. taking everything in through its nose. It doesn't need its eyes. It still does use them, but it's trying to experience the world or experiences the world through its nose. And that realisation in watching my own dog learn, like me learning through a dog showing me, and like one of the – I can't remember the quote that's in there, but I put it in our book about the worst member in the dog handler team is the human. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Glenn liked the comment that I used, like give the dog its nose, like let the dog go and use its nose, stand back and watch it. And we often find that handlers are trying to influence. And even the more, uh, like I've spent a lot of time looking at the technical side of what uh, researching papers that handlers aren't going to have the time to do or may not have the interest to do, but try to condense that down in our training to give that information. And so our training material becomes very technical. Mm -hmm. And that's where Andrew comes in and removes my technical part to make it a bit easier to read, but the technical stuff's still there if people want it. Yeah. And um, like he kept, captures the really good to know things that might be helpful. But taking that information to how do we go from two different animals, two different ways of seeing a world mm. with two different problems, like we approach it in our way, but we're trying to get an animal to do a job, an animal that domesticated and will trust exactly what we tell it to do over its own nose, which knows what to do. How do we stop that influence happening so we let this animal do the work that we want it to do? Mm -hmm. That's really a worldwide phenomenon
2: or an issue in scent work is, you know, a lot of handlers don't realize the impact that they have on their animal. And we've had some world-class people that have been on our show before, you know, and hopefully into the future we'll bring more on, you know, people like Cameron Ford and Jerry Bradshaw and countless others, Pat Nolan, who are exceptional trainers. And there's an abundance of people out there who are really, really good at their job. But those gentlemen that I just spoke of, they were pretty much putting that point out before that there's a lot of times where civilians, military, government agents, whatever, that are working with their animals, they simply don't understand the impact that they have when they do too much for their dog. Like all the dog needs to know is is have an understanding and a comprehension of what it's looking for and what it leads to, and then let the dog do its mm-hmm. job. So once we've taught the dog the how-tos, then we need to step back from there and to say, okay, what I need to do is I need to observe the dog in its natural environment, watch how it works, understand when it's cueing to me, when the indicators start to arise, and then to step in from there, not to be too much of a crutch to the dog. And that word I, I try and use with a lot of students a lot of times because the word crutch really needs to be removed from dog handling in general because, as I said, once you've taught the dog and the dog has an understanding, step back and then you know move into the phase of either reinforcing or punishing the dog. The tricky part, as you say, there is is you say the dog's understanding, right? And yeah. that's 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 what I think
1: is the 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 difference between, oh, I can train my dog to do a few things versus watch me give a single command and my dog perform the action exactly, exactly as I as I intend. And a big part of, you know, it's one of the reasons I, I don't love scent work is because, you know, I'm really into, you know, technical and precise obedience. I'm into bite work and that sort of thing. Uh, lots of other like high drive high arousal events with dogs and then putting the control piece over the top of that that's what i really like like if, if that's what is exciting to me about dog training and that's why the sport that i play is psa which is i would argue is the you know the most distractions and real world pressures being applied to the dog while he's expected to work and what we see You know, in that high level game, as well as in pet dog training is that the dog's understanding of the criteria of a behavior becomes evident when he's asked to do it in a picture that's not typical of what he normally expects. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in, um, in the pet dog world, I get a lot of people saying, you know, how do I teach my dog to down at distance? Because every time I say to my dog down, he comes back in front of me. And so, you know, if you want your dog to down at distance, we say, Well, his understanding of the criteria of what a down is has to allow him to do that at distance, right? So most people, because they teach the down right there in front of them, when you say down, a compliant dog appears to be ignoring you for the duration of running towards you before he downs in front of you. And you say, no, I wanted him to down over there. And you say, well, that's not his understanding of the criteria. Mm. And sometimes I teach some really technical things. Like I, I I spoke about once, I posted a video in our group about I was teaching my dog a resend away, right? So I was teaching my dog to go to one marker board and then go to another one after that. And I had that certain on commands. And then when I changed, when I flipped my training 180 degrees, turned out I didn't have what I thought I had at all. My dog like I'd basically named my marker boards, then my dog understand and go to the close one, then the far one. When I turned around 180 degrees, you went to the far one and then the close one. And it was those marker boards had a specific thing. So I really like in obedience and uh, bite work, getting to the, the, the core of well, how does my dog understand this and minimizing the input so that his understanding of it is identical to mine. But in the scent work,
3: I can't do that. But just listening to that, scent work is the same. Yeah. I would say it's the same because... It is the, the same, but
1: I can't <laughs> smell what the dog is smelling. And, <laughs> and that's a <that's> bit <laughs> that
3: you have to trust that the dog can smell through what you have to, taught the dog, that this is the odour that you want to find for this reinforcement. Yeah, And then you still got to do that um, just because you've taught it to find it in this room doesn't mean it's going to find it in the next room. So you still got to go through the, all those same processes But I often think that we don't give the dogs the credit that we could because we think of language as a bit different and why can't we give it a name? I want you to go and find X Explosive and the dog runs off and finds it. It's actually offensive in a lot of ways how much we
2: impede the dog's olfaction. That's the difficulty that people have is – as humans, as we're evolutionary designed to believe that we're superior in all ways. But that's an ego and an, and an ignorance thing. Because when We you told look ourselves at- that. Sorry? We told ourselves we, that. We, we did. We told ourselves that. And that the problem is educated people understand that's not the yep. case. So when you're looking at things like Olfaction – we have such a, a limited ability on what we actually use. So even
3: like look at the, like what odour is in like as humans, we see the world and we hear the world. is mm. really our senses, Absolutely. even though our nose still plays a role. So we've labelled them. We give a wavelength for sight and sound, but there is no label for odour. Mm. Like if I asked you what does a banana smell like, you would tell me it smells like a banana, mm. but that is not, a, uh, but you could
1: describe a banana.
3: Yeah, you but could... it's not objective enough. Yeah, it's subjective. Yeah, because yep. uh, if I gave you an orange and uh, trained you that an orange was smelt like a banana, you're going to say an orange smells like a banana. So it's not a definition-based um, way of measurement, and that's mm-hmm. the problem. Whereas animals that live in that space of the nose have a quantitative way of identifying their environment through that odor thing. Mm-hmm what they're smelling to see that world that way Mm. and or to experience it that way so they can be very specific in what they're actually getting out the trouble is as humans when we're training them we're not specific enough with what we ask them to do Mm. and that was the mistake that i like i made when i did the imprinting on the five dollar note thinking my dog's gonna find every other note but What's in a $5 note? There's plastic, there's different types of pigments. Yep. And even now and the that, ink f- variant. Yeah. And now that um, we've changed our currency, she's lost her mother odor Yep, because it's no longer produced. I've now had to re-imprint again on the new notes so that she'll find them. And this is just for fun for her, but Guy was lucky enough not to be a dog trainer, not to be a dog handler, and to go through a journey of watching a dog use its nose for my benefit and- actually giving her a nose to teach me Mm. which is what i went through so i put something out and had a way like have had something that was uh very attractive for her which was a high bounce rubber ball she'll run off a cliff for that ball that was worth it for her to do anything for that ball and then going through now putting in other odors and that sort of thing to watch and learn from a dog not me telling a dog now I did it the other way a dog teaching me and that was what I took to then let's start doing imprinting of homemade explosives for dogs from that point of view and then going down or like back to how my head works is I want to understand what's going on so then it was into the research and uh, and as I discussed with Glenn the problems I had with the NDTF of how far of research to with where with my answers for NDTF on what's going on in a head Mm mm-hmm in animals' heads, not just dogs' heads, but all animals' heads in how we do things and how we process or how animals process in the the sensory information that comes in. Like even for odour work, just because you've done, like we're touching back with to your PSA stuff, just because I've presented this odour that way, it doesn't mean it's going to find it 100 metres away yeah. because I've not mm. searched the dog out there. But you can get that. Yeah. Yeah if the dog wants to do it. And you can get really specific with what you want your dog to find. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. That's what I just find stressful though, is that when we're using sight and sound as senses, right? The dogs probably aren't that different to mine, right? So, so when we're just dealing in obedience, the cues that I give the dog, my body language cues, environmental cues, what he can read, I can read, right? But then with the odor, the cues that he's getting are not, I can't read them. And there could be many things there that I'm totally unaware of. So it's a trust problem then. (laughs) 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 But that's why I think me and you share a similar sort of technical brain in that regard. And that's why I... I mean, I do it as much as I need to, but I don't enjoy it. Like I fucking love getting my dog out and go and do bite work and obedience and that kind of stuff. But when I do any detection work with people, I find it very easy to get caught up, like wrapped around the axles on it because I'm saying, you know, like with a trained dog, yeah, no worries. And the dog knows the odor profiles looking for and great. We can be a bit sloppy. We can make mistakes. But when you're imprinting. Like I can, with my dog, as I was saying, when I said, go to that marker board and now go to the other one, when I turned it around 180 degrees, I can see, I can go, oh, this is his understanding of it. Mm. But then when your dog's not indicating because of you think, and, and you know, I've been careful with my gloves and my control odors and all that sort of stuff. And then if it still doesn't work, I now I have to say, you know, does the dog not imprinted on the odor? Or is he imprinted on the wrong odour? And that's a variable that I didn't understand because I didn't control for it.
3: Or right. is it the right dog? Well, I look at any dog
2: confined. They can, but... they want to. It, but it, they it's, the same it, with, yeah. it's the same with people with exercise. Yep. I mean, everybody's capable of exercise. Some people just don't want to. They don't have the motivation, the desire, or the medical... A capability to do so and that exists in dogs as well which people they'll get out there on the field like I've watched people wanting to do nose works before and they'll watch their neighbor doing exceptionally well in an environment and they wonder why they're not doing so well but when you package it all up there's a lot of limitations and a lot of problems that need to be examined in that environment is it the dog is it the handler or is it a combination of both
3: so I do look at that uh, every dog can because that's they're born with a nose that works. They can. They absolutely um, can. Whether they want to work with a human yep. to find things. And that's the thing. We're trying to get a dog to find something that has nothing to do with the like the reptile limbic system of their brain. Yep. Because that's the part we're stimulating with giving them the reinforcement. So it's not if it's not around food, like that whole using the nose was part of the hunt motor pattern. And now we're trying to get the dog to hunt for something that it can't actually eat. But how do we stimulate that and that's where the breed in some ways like the working breeds on that nose side Mm. work better because they can't control it they have to do it but getting a toy dog will still use its nose but it really prefers just to sit on your lap i guess that's the crutch that we develop in domestication is that we remove the
2: desire of the want the dog to want to or need to do that sort of thing because everything is delivered to the dog the dog doesn't need to use any of this anymore so therefore you have an effect of apathy on that side of the brain. The brain is just basically lethargic because it thinks, well, I don't need to do this anymore. Whereas when you've got a dog that's driven to do it or you've got a, you know, a non-domesticated animal, it's a survival instinct. They think Mm. "I, I have to do this. I mean, you're right. All dogs can detect, you know, and they will when they want to, when they have enough desire to do so. For example, if a dog is in season, a male scenting a female or whatever it is, the desire goes through the roof to do so. So if the desire is there, it'll switch back on again. It's mm. recallable, it is there, yep. but the problem is it's the same thing that you see that lethargic effect taking place.
3: But you're right, we have to find a dog that wants to work mm. and also have, like it's knowing it's going to, the reinforcement is worth that work. Yep. And that's the, the hard part because, again, looking at the handler-trainer team, you see people give the dog something that, like, I wouldn't even bother getting out of bed for it, you're giving that dog for that. Mm. So why do you think it's going to work for it when, for example, if you had a food-orientated dog and you're trying to give it a toy, like a tug toy or something, that you think, oh, this is the bee's needs for this dog, when a handful of liver treats would probably be, you'd get a lot more performance out of it. But mm. we can't think past what we think. As opposed to what is the dog really wanting at that time to do that work and how do you build that up well there's a couple of
2: names i'm going to drop there which is tobias gustafson and cameron ford both men are highly into canine cognition you know, And because of the work and the research that they're doing and the teams they're behind, they're finding that because their selection criteria and their understanding of how the brain works, they're wiping out a lot less dogs now. Whereas beforehand, a lot of teams were just bringing dogs in. Their limitation of knowing what they're dealing with and right dog for right scenario, a lot of dogs were just getting wiped out of courses because they didn't know what to look for. So primarily agencies would bring dogs in and some of these were very capable dogs But they would just look at the dog and go, okay, well, you're not meeting the criteria you have to go. And in some cases, they're right. Some of the dogs just can't live up to the standard that's being produced, whether that's high or low, I don't know. But the dogs just can't compete against that type of background that the dog has been brought into.
3: The other thing you'll have there is everyone learns at a different time frame, same as humans. And often when we put like running a training program, like we're going to take these 10 dogs to become uh, search dogs, Mm. we've only got 10 weeks to do it. That dog, you might have a dog there that could be a good dog, but it needed 12 weeks and it's going to get dropped off because of that. Yeah. And you can't help because everyone learns differently and a different pace. And that's the same. And that's one of the things that we see with the work that we do. Like we don't train dogs, we don't imprint them. People are coming to us as a team with an imprinted dog. We're providing an odor they don't normally get access to Mm. and then allowing the dog to go back through the teaching phase, training phase. Uh, hopefully, in that time frame that we've got them. Um, be Ideally, it'd be great if we could get to the proofing phase, but we are not around long enough for that to be achieved. But the part is we see dogs there, some that can pick it up. That They might pick one odour up really quickly, but then they'll struggle on another one mm. and take a lot longer. But even watching the teams come in where they've had this dog, they might have been working with this dog for years, and come in and think its dog's going to pick up this odour straight away, and it doesn't. But the dog's not been in a teaching mode for, or teaching phase or learning anything for so long. It's out there searching for what it's been told to find and having them to realise that you've got to switch this dog back on to learning again. And that takes time. We don't go and sit in a classroom without knowing that. We're going to go there to go and learn something. How do you tell a dog that, oh, you're going to go and turn up and learn because we don't have a way of communicating that and having that time To get that dog thinking that this is, I'm back to school now, I'm learning again, is a challenge when we've got no method of communication Mm. apart from using their primary reinforcer to try to trigger them to sit on something or to indicate on something that they didn't know before.
1: Yeah, that's something that, you know, unfortunately most agencies aren't raising their own dogs. You you get an adult dog and they get them from wherever, but learning to learn in the dog space is, is huge and mm. that's one of the things like my dog is capable of making me look good because he's spent so much time learning and i literally can say to him you're learning something new and he starts solving problems and offering behaviors and then i can say like hey that window shut you ain't learned anything new. do what you're told and that allows me to look good because i can teach a dog very quickly i can teach him very quickly how to do new stuff and anybody who would try and replicate that, they could do the exact same steps I'm doing with a dog with the exact same drives and whatever, but they would have to break through the locking in behavior section first. We just right. put out a video on the Patreon of that, exactly that where I can basically anybody who would be watching that video would go, this dude's got no control over his dog. The dog's barking and just being an asshole. And, and it's because I've told him pre like prior the rules are off. Relax. Yeah. All criteria is relaxed because there's a new criteria and you have to find it. And especially the dog with as much obedience and control as he does, that can be really difficult to come out of that, to offer something new.
3: But also look at just like, so going back to my own dog, I got her as a pup and had six months one-on-one going through that with her. And now as Ken's pointed out, she's with me all the time like Mm -hmm. um, being an assistance dog. We have a very good bond together and we spend a lot of time together and I'm always doing different things just to see what she's capable of doing like I look at she's always in a I can always be learning something so having that mindset and I see that even with humans that you can switch that that want to learn off Mm. I'm comfortable happy in my little comfortable environment right now and I don't want to step outside that comfort zone and have to relearn. Or you can have people, and that's where I look at myself in every, like I had a school teacher as a was a mentor for me in a lot of ways that said, if you're not learning, you're dying. Mm. So every day I've got to learn. So yesterday I was reading about sent generalization paper that had just been sent to me in an email. So it was what can I learn along with doing an introductory to chemistry at a university course. And whereas I look at some of my peers who are happy just to sit back and drink a beer at night, I'm not that way, so I want to keep learning. Having, starting, and I uh, I guess looking at an animal, uh, so when I met my wife, she had a dog that didn't want to learn, but she'd never spent the time actually teaching. She got it as an 18-month-old pup from a rescue, and it was a hard battle to get this dog to start to learn some simple obedience like a recall when it had nothing by the time uh, I'd met her. This dog is now four years old with no recall. It's never had what is this learning environment that you're going to, this human learning environment that you're going to try to impose on me. Whereas starting with a dog at a young age, being put in that training environment, knowing that I am constantly going to, everything out here could earn me something if I'm willing to stay learning, can change that mindset. And you can see that like going through school, those kids that get left behind switch off their ability to learn because it, mm-hmm. it's not being it's not no reinforcement for me to do that Like, how do you harness that again in an older mindset that has already turned that off and mm. that's one of the things i look at with when we like so i can only look at the way the army is currently getting selecting their detection dogs is to go to a pound and take a bunch of dogs or to go to a breeder and buy a bunch of dogs and if they chase a tennis ball yeah that's a dog we're going to start with that's not a dog necessarily that is going to learn mm it's a dog that might chase a tennis ball doesn't mean that it has a learning mindset. And how do we find that? And also when it comes to, when you're looking at uh, scent detection is in that the desire, like the, the part of hunting for food, all those behaviors can be turned on and off depending on where they're triggered in their developmental stage. So if I don't trigger the desire to uh, say chase, I might not never get a dog to go and chase a dummy. Yeah. If I never switched it on because it doesn't come back on later on. I can force it to do it, but it's not – an innate desire that is going to continually do it.
1: Yeah, I agree. There's definitely windows of opportunity in some like what what would be an innate thing the dog would do. He may not do if he's never exposed to yep. it for it that that first window of opportunity yep. to flip <laughs> that switch genetically. Thinking about what you're saying then as well, that that teaching something new, we often see that with dogs that are like very compulsively trained where mistakes are dangerous. Mm. You know, so like yeah. if, you know, there's a balance in training. Obviously, we call ourselves balanced trainers, but you have to pay for things you like, but also sometimes let the dog just find out that he's wrong by non-reinforcement rather than a, – a, like the consequence is nothing rather than the consequence being the application of discomfort or something like that. So the dogs always feel relatively open and, and are able to make mistakes. They're not, they're, they're not so are You know, what, I'm afraid of learning. Yeah, well, afraid of making mistakes is, is yeah. usually the issue. That's We see that a lot in dogs that lock in behaviors. Mm. And, and you see that quite a bit in dogs that uh, have a handler that is not so precise. One of the – one of the uh, I can usually tell when a dog's going to be like that is when a handler will, say, have a, a terminal marker, say, a, a clicker, right? And that is the behavior is over, take your reinforcement. And they have the dog healing. And they click and they deliver the reinforcement in place, right? So the dog is no longer healing because the click happened, but the the food was put into the dog's head. And now there's this gray zone of the dog's not healing anymore, but he's still in the heel position. And if that dog breaks his head from that heel position or goes to investigate on the floor, if the handler corrects the dog for doing that, then because in their head, they're still in the heel, right? But it's over in the dog's mind. I know straight away this is going to be a much harder dog to teach anything because he tried something new. He didn't believe himself to be under command and received a consequence for it, like a punitive consequence for it. And so now we know, ah, that's a relationship that's going to be difficult to unlock that dog. Sometimes even can't be because like certainly it can happen with another handler. You might say Hmm. to them like, hey, are we able to swap over here? But if that's someone's dog, then it can be like, hmm, we're going to have to go to free shaping or something like that for a little while just to get those gears spinning in the dog. And and unfortunately, you're right. Like if that window is closed, it may not open again. Mm. Jerry actually spoke about that on our show once, talking about defensive work in dogs, like getting real aggression in the bite work. If you don't, you know, there's a a time to do that and you have to do it. Otherwise, a dog may not really become a a real biter. He'll be playing a game until you – I mean, of course you can do it, but what you would have to do to the dog would be so – Unfair on the dog if you'd just done it two years earlier, and it would that switch would have flicked a lot quicker and Mm. easier.
0: It's really interesting just listening to that back and forth. Then five years ago, my understanding of imprinting a dog didn't cover any of this. I was just very ignorant to what was involved. And if you look at the complexity of what you're trying to do, for starters, you've got to have the right dog. Then the dog needs to be trained correctly. Mm -hmm. Needs have the right environment. You need to have the right handler. You need to be employing the dog in the environment in a certain way. And you need to imprint the dog on the right odor. So there's there's so many things that can be done partially wrong, completely wrong, or not at all. We got into this because we are able to manufacture certain odors that are not readily available. And that was my understanding of what we were providing. We were going to working operational clients that just wanted to build their library of what they could find. Mm. And once we got into it, we started scraping the surface. Q said, oh, I've just done this course, you know, and I've learned this, this, and this about dog training. This is with you, Glenn. And I I was like, geez, all that's really interesting. But are they going to be receptive to us trying to help them with what they think they already know and they're already good at? Going into an environment where you have experienced handlers teams and an operational background where they've been doing the job for a long time. And unfortunately, this is not a criticism on any of our clients, but when you get into a comfort zone where you think you know what you're doing and you you cease looking for what you don't know, there's a false sense of security there. Mm. We've had very, very few terrorist-related bombings in Australia in our entire history. And we've been lucky and there's a few other things that we, we won't go into on the podcast. But certainly, it's hard for us to go to these people- Some are older than us, some are the same age, but you know, I'm not a dog handler. Who am I to tell this experienced handler? Hey, listen, I think that you're doing A, B and C and that's leading to this. So having said all that, looking at just the element of odor, this was another thing that we came across that we talked about at length was some of the explosive materials. um, They're what, what you call monomolecular. So mono meaning one and molecular referring to the molecule. So, Mm. The fuel and the oxidizer, which are required in explosives, are chemically combined on one molecule, monomolecular. So we're talking about TNT, PETN, which is a plastic explosive, and there's a few others. And the terrorist explosives like uh, Mother of Satan, you may have heard in the news, that's a monomolecular explosive, chemically formed. So that is its own thing. Then you have a whole second branch of materials called FOX fuel and oxidizer, where they are mechanically combined. So the the most well-known one is AMFO, AMFO, Mm. ammonium nitrate fuel oil. Now that's a mechanical mixture. So the constituent parts are still there. Ammonium nitrate is still there as an ammonium nitrate thing. And the diesel is there as a diesel thing. If you look at technical instruments, fuels and oxidizers get found in different ways. They have different responses nothing to do with the dog, you know, from what I've seen. What you imprint the dog on is going to have a huge effect on what it's going, going to go and look for.
2: Absolutely. Um,
0: so when, when you're talking about anfo for example, if you imprint the dog on amfo, it's going to go and find your diesel all day, every day, and then it's going to sit next to maybe. a truck. <laughs> well, maybe. maybe. Or chicken Hi- shit. Hypothetically. <laughs> it's going to go and sit next to something that potentially has got nothing to do with what you're looking for because that's what – it's doing what you think – it's been told exactly. to do.
1: And so there's problems two directions on that, right? Like if you've got a dog that's indicating on diesel and not being reinforced, then he starts to think, oh, my, I'm wrong about that odour. Mm. So I'll no longer indicate on it. Or as well, you've got dogs that are indicating on a couple of drops spill of diesel and you suddenly think that it's a- an explosive. explosive and you mm. evacuate a facility or shut something down or something like that. So it, it's, a, it's an easy thing to say, oh, this little problem, but it can it's be not a fucking catastrophic yeah. problem. You evacuate 100,000 people for no reason, or your dog doesn't or stops yeah. finding value in, in showing that to you. And would you say, sorry to cut you off, but uh, NFO would be one of the most common terrorist type use explosives, right? Because you can make it yourself pretty easily
0: not really mm-hmm. no, no. Uh, that that's a ve- what you've asked is a very complicated right.
1: question right <laughs> okay um,
0: <laughs> it it varies not only over region it varies over time right so we we've got in australia what's called the chemicals of security concern code of practice mm-hmm. and that that outlines what chemicals that are to be controlled and sold in what ways and it, it gets there's a lot of technicalities around it amfo is the one that's the most well known because the mining industry uses it and the ira made it famous over
1: and you know, Timothy, the Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma, his was an AmphoCharge, right? Yes, yeah. yep.
0: And, and so it has been used when it was easy to get hold of. It's changed. There are a lot of other ones that are commonly used. And I guess to dumb it down, there are specific oxidizers and specific explosives that you can imprint on from a you know risk point of view that would make you the most effective depending on if you're working at an airport or, sure, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I won't go into what those are, but – whilst there are holes that remain, there are certainly ways that we approach imprinting that greatly enhances the capability. And
3: just to add to what Andrew said there, if you um, it comes back to that generalization part in the odor, like to take a, a fuel oxidizer mix is probably one of the hardest odors to imprint a dog on as opposed to a monomolecular because the monomolecular is always going to be that bunch of crystal like a mm-hmm. bunch of atoms together. Whereas a fuel oxidizer, you're taking two different molecules, putting them together to make it that odor. Now if I'm gonna take What's the, f- the signature odor? Yeah, so if I'm gonna take the fuel as my imprinting tool, where else can that fuel be? So say as in as in Amfo, where it's got diesel, am I got a dog's now sitting on all these like diesel spills or diesel jerry cans and that lying around? Or do I then put it on the ammonium nitrate, which is a fertilizer? Does that mean now when I put the two together, is the dog gonna find it? Yeah. That's the problem.
0: And people always ask us, well, they don't ask us what we should imprint on. Generally, the client will come and say we're interested in A, B, and C. We look at a lot of case studies, most of them open source, but we do get indications, uh, you know, what they're using in the Middle East or or in Southeast Asia. And the whole thing about what are they going to use? What is the terrorist explosive of choice? And I always say, well, that depends. Depends on your supply chain. Depends on your knowledge. Depends on your skill, the application of what you're trying to do. So there are some very easy peroxide-based primary explosives that you can make, uh, that you can teach someone to make very easily, which is what I had Glenn get involved in on this course. Mm. Now, depending on what you can get hold of, you may or may not want to make that because it is very sensitive and it may not suit the need of what you're trying to do. So there is no terrorist explosive of choice. Mm. There are different explosives for different applications and they greatly depend on what chemical precursors you can get and what you are trying to do with it. Um, plus, if you've got no experience and skill, you're less likely to take on a very technically challenging material to make when you could make a very simple one that's going to do what you want it to do anyway. So, for us, that that's a very, there is no easy answer to that. It depends, I guess, is the answer.
2: If we track back on what we were originally talking about, one of the things that I really appreciated and took away from the course is that it encompasses the holistic approach to it, not just training the dog team, but training the handler as well, like including them on the observational skills that you're including in on that So you're piecing in the olfaction system, but you're also using the eyes and knowledge of the handler behind that as well. And that's what I really took away from it as well, because for me, that was never really the knowledge that I took away when I was doing explosive detection. My main concern was teaching the dog to do it and then just getting the hell out of there if I ever found anything. For me primarily was I didn't really know to stick around and start taking notes and and looking at what I'm seeing. I just thought, well, if the dog has hit on an odor, I need to report it to somebody. To be honest, an EDD handler shouldn't be touching or fiddling with anything they're unaware of. It's the same thing if you come across a, a dead body. You don't know if somebody's murdered it. You don't know why it's there. You need to maybe take some notes or tell some people, but just leave the scene alone. You know, Leave it to the professionals to come in and take place. It's the same thing I would say to anybody. If you're working EDD and your dog ever indicated on it, Don't stick around and start poking around in areas because you're probably going to detonate the charge. And, you know, Q, you and I were speaking about this exponentially based on your background. You've been actively deployed where you've been walking along trails, digging out and disarming explosives for people. Can we just sort of divert and talk about that for a little bit of time? (laughs) Because, I mean, that to me is something quite harrowing and an experience that many people would never have an understanding of. I know you've been in active combat, Pat. You've been deployed, Coey, as well. Yep. You know, but I mean, walking along a trail, actually trying to dig out something that's there and you don't know whether somebody's going to be up on a hill with a with a button or I don't know how it all happens. I have no experience in this. This is kind of like a Sesame Stream thing where one of these things is not like so- the other things. So I'm the odd man out in this conversation because I've never been deployed. I'm not, I'm so not a government So if I add agent. Pat
3: to this, yep. we're the man up on the hill. That's Pat's job, not mine. Yep. And I'm totally reliant on someone like Pat to look after that for me while my head's down. Yep. And I'm focused on what I'm doing. And it all comes back to, I was trained to disarm bombs. Mm. And so when I'm doing it, training kicks in and I do my job. So you know how to train a dog? Yep. You can train a dog. I knew how to disarm a bomb. I can disarm a bomb. Mm -hmm. And often I use the analogy of like from a military point of view of doing it, it was great opportunity to go like a wrong way of thinking for a lot of people but to actually go on a deployment to do my job was really good because I spent my whole time learning how to do it yep and now I finally got to put my skills into practice can I just ask you a question on this how did you get over
2: in the headspace of not thinking is this the one I never had that in my headspace okay you know
1: so a friend of mine I was in the army with he once said to me IEDs are like sharks when you surf yep they're out there yep it could be swimming underneath you right now. Yep. And if you're going to get your leg bit off, that's fucking going to happen. And that happens to people all the time. And just but for the people- who of
2: surfers who are just kicking around <laughs> and have no idea there's sharks trawling around underneath them. For, for the people who swim across Cabbage Bay and Manly, yeah. being a diver, I've seen the sharks <laughs> in the water that you're swimming around well, on top of. IEDs are fuck like that. Like I got blown up in
1: 2008 yeah. and um, half the company had walked across the same IED. Mm. It got turned on for my interpreter- I mean, it's a long story, but I, I mean, I was totally fine. I was just outside the blast radius and the, the guy behind me was killed, but he he wore all the frag that I could have got to me. But, you know, 40 people had walked across that and there were another 40 on the other side of where it was going to go off and mm. it was turned on for someone.
2: So there's specific, there's hot target. I
3: mean, you would have been a hot target, wouldn't you? Like, bomb techs were targeted because we were taking that stuff away. Yeah. So there was, um, well, they did say there was a bounty on us. And um, I know for my- first rotation were easy to see because we towed a big robot behind us. So easy to stand out.
0: You know, Glenn, anyone can be a bomb disposal technician once.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the the big part is it comes back to like any job that you learn or anything you do, you learn how to do it. Mm. And long as your training has covered how to do the job and even – in everything we've been talking about where you were going that I'm going to do step 1 through to 3 or step and like all step 1 and 3 that's the the part that's got to happen that generalization because the one i mean I was a, called an EOD an explosive ordnance disposal technician in the military mm. which meant I also did conventional ordnance to dispose of that and to make that stuff safe there was steps yep. 1 through to whatever to do that job when mm. it comes to IEDs you had to make those steps up And that's the challenging part with IED work, and it depends on how you can uh, look at the threat that's there, come up with uh, measures to make it safe for you. So you're analysing your whole environment around you, coming up with measures to make it safe, and then you're putting those in practice. And there's always the the next one might be your last one, but Mm. you never dwell on that because you're only doing – you're focused right now on what you're doing at the time. Your rush comes afterwards when you come back. Hugh and I always talk about how much we've learned – since
0: leaving the military and mm. it's militaries for us, for our backgrounds, although they are quite different in day-to-day job, you're all blue focused, good guys, you know, the winning side. And so much of that is around, you understand enough about what the enemy does to really learn the safe ways to do your job and, and how to safely operate. Mm. Since we've both gotten out, we're always, it's always comes up in conversation between us, how much we've learned about the enemy and how they think, and why they do things the way they do, and that has made us so much better teachers, because instead of just reteaching what we've been told, or putting into practice something we've read, we're really getting that depth of understanding, oh, that's why they do it like that, that makes so much sense now, I never got that until mm. I put my red hat on, put my myself in the, the shoes of the enemy, you know, he's not going to take crazy risks if he doesn't have to, that's going to drive him to do things a certain way and and depending on where you are and what you're doing that that means things and um certainly the the name red team you know generated
3: from that yeah Mm.
2: yeah
0: well it it came first but i guess it was a lucky pick of business names at the time
3: (laughs) but that look at anything you do you learn how to do it and once you've got that I mean, basically moving into that proofing phase and doing the generalisation that I can apply that knowledge that I've learnt to any situation is what you want. Mm. And so being able to do that as a bomb tech is no different than a dog handler team doing it with the dog searching for an odour. Yep. And that's really where we're coming back to.
1: What was the percentage when you deployed on, like, uh, IEDs found, did you, like, render safe and remove versus uh, blown place?
3: I said I'd never... Render safe one, the very first one I did. Oh, really? Because it's pretty rare. It like is. for people listening in um, Afghanistan but, or, or like places we've been. I did it with a robot. The first one I ever did was with a robot. Right. Um, and I did pull it apart and I'd said I would never recover it because there was no need and I recovered my first one.
1: Yeah. So it's really um, only if setting it off from a safe distance is going to cause like critical infrastructure yes, damage that so you would so, ever yeah, bother. So domestically where, you would almost all, you, well, always um, just Always, appear.
3: yes. So for the domestic training for the stuff that uh, uh, Rolls was involved in, in Australia, mm-hmm. it was always practicing for that render safe. Yeah. But in Afghanistan- Get that um, great big water charge and fucking blow it up. <laughs> oh, no, I'd just put a slab straight on it. Yeah. wouldn't skip the water, just go straight for the bang. It's always in your head, even in domestically, is can I blow this up where it is? Mm. So I'd always try to do that first up. A lot of people out there, like my wife, for example, she's going to be cringing and hearing that because she would want me to recover the evidence because of her job. Yeah, right, yeah.
1: You use plenty of evidence from the pieces. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. But, um, when I got blown up, they would tell me exactly what, like, they because hey, it was a big thing. Yep. And they told me you couldn't believe the detail they got from yep. that. Yeah. And I
2: was like, well, artillery shells and so It forth. was
1: three mortar rounds that yep. were buried into the ground. And it was mm-hmm. it was a pressure plate IED and it was uh, turned on via mobile. Yep. And so everybody was hitting the pressure plate and it wasn't doing anything. And then it got turned on. The next person that hits it sets it off. But it was three mortar rounds dug about a meter and a half into the ground. So it was really designed for a person. Yeah. Yep. And it only killed that person and one other in a pretty dense, like, I mean, we're crossing a river. So like we're within a few meters of each other.
3: So the first one I recovered was a uh, radio command one as well. Right. Uh, with three mortar rounds and I managed to pull it apart and it didn't find all the parts. So I ended up putting on the bomb suit and walking down range. Yeah. To right. Finish it off and digging it up, had the camel spider run across my hand as I was digging it up. No the last shit. <laughs> you had all the stories. Fun one. <laughs> you
0: know what's- you know what's so fascinating though about these discussions because we get asked often, how do we stay abreast of the threat? How do you know what they're trying, what the newest thing is? And mm. and I'll tell you, most of the stuff that we've been looking at that's been occurring over the last 30 years is the same. Everything changes and nothing's different. You don't need to change a whole raft of the fundamentals of IEDs, improvised explosive devices, because depending on where you apply it, it will still work to a certain degree. So for us, we're seeing the same things that were relevant in 2005 are resurfacing. This is in the, the Middle East.
3: The pressure plate, for his example, was the... Saw sixth, blades? The Sixth Dynasty did a pressure plate. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, right.
0: There's a lot so of stuff It's in not history. Yeah. I and mean,
3: it's not new technology. A pressure plate was around yeah. that long ago.
1: It's funny when, like, so in dog training, uh, one of the things we use is this clack-clack that Bart invented, right? And it's, uh, it's just two aluminium... Blades or stainless steel, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and dog steps on it, goes clang. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw one, I was like, "Oh, I've seen those, but made, <laughs> but made out of saw blades. <laughs> like, that's n- nothing new going on there." Well, uh-uh. yeah.
0: When we get asked to make training aids, there's, there's a variety of clients that that ask for training aids for different things, and uh, they'll bring something to you and say, "Oh, this is just we've just started seeing these," and you'll look at it and you'll go, "Oh, that's X." Yeah. Like, How did you know that? well, it's been used since the year 2000, and you talk to anyone that fought in the Northern Ireland conflict over a long time, there's things that that they were pioneering and they weren't even the original users. It's come from wherever else in the world, some as far back as the the Chinese
1: initial use and – if what people sort of fail to understand as well is that while you guys are getting paid to travel the world to teach people this stuff to render safe, there's people getting paid to travel the world to teach people this stuff to make it. And you, you see things move through regions and stuff like mm. that. You see like what was really common in Iraq in the early 2000s didn't come into Afghanistan until like, you know, later 2012 type stuff. Like it took that long to get into there. It was really different.
3: But where the internet is, things travel yeah, quicker. Yeah, true.
1: Exactly. But there are like actual in-person courses. They actually yep. bring people together Absolutely. and and run a course
3: we uh, you know one of always the, like the suicide bomber one yeah yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> but like one of the companies at two commando famously happened across a weapons course <laughs> they, were, yeah. they were flying in on uh meant to you know assault uh, what was meant to be a, a leadership meeting and it turned out actually to be them running a machine gun course and every machine gun in the region was there with guys oh, getting wow. taught how to use it yeah
0: they do their own you know modifying drone courses that there, there's a whole and there's a lot of information out there just for the listeners' peace of mind. We, we both still hold security clearances with, with the government, uh, and I'm sure ASIO know who we are.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's bring it back to dogs a little bit. You're talking about that you create training aids that people had to have sense that people don't normally have access to. So is that in the form of a pseudo or a live? Live. Right. So you can, on the spot, manufacture a HME that then dogs can – search for. And I imagine uh, that there's some sort of odour degradation on that. So one you make today is going to smell differently to that same thing two years later. So people who have had a training device for so a long
3: time. Because of what we do, our license only allows us to make it and destroy it. Right. But uh, that's what I'm but saying. So Somebody who it.
1: has that in their in their kit, in their magazine, we've got, oh, we've got HME. It's been sitting on the shelf and we've been using it as a training aid for two years.
3: I'm going to say if they had HME on their shelf... They're doing something illegal. Right. Okay. The, the thing <laughs> right. is with
0: that there are certain explosives that come commercially available and, and they can sit in a magazine and can be used over time and they will degrade. And that's a whole discussion thing. Mm. The the ones that we make generally don't have a UN number, which means they're not licensed. They're not an authorized explosive. The peroxide explosives are are a classic case. So you can't sell it commercially, which means you can't store it which Mm -hmm. means you can't do anything with it. We have a specific license that allows us to do that for research, education, et cetera, reasons. Some of the other materials you can get it, sure. Like you could buy fertilizer, A, B, or C, and you could make your own. But as soon as you've combined it into a fox, you've just manufactured explosives. So if you're a dog training company out there without a manufacturer license and you go, oh, well, I'm just, it's a shake and bake. I'm making pancakes. I'm adding water to whatever. And you do that and you make explosives. Well, there's a very serious, you know, issue there. Yeah, Um,
1: And I think a lot of people can take for granted that a commercial explosives is usually very stable and you can fuck around with it and it's no big deal. But HMEs HMEs aren't so much. Absolutely.
2: And the the other good thing, the other comforting thing that you were talking about, on the course was how many people are identifying that you might be up to a mischief when you're trying to pick up these products Like people are actually red flagging people and saying, hey, you know, this guy or these people are trying to buy these things. Uh, It doesn't look right.
0: Absolutely. So there's part of this response that that I won't go into Mm. about what I found and what wasn't picked up, et cetera. That's a whole discussion for a different time. But certainly when it comes to buying chemical precursors, trying to source raw materials, et cetera, there's a whole raft of things that we've learned. And we pass things on to our security apparatus, and we have chats with people, and we learn certain things. I've had the counterterrorism hotline called on me twice, once for a fertilizer, another time for an acid, and it's good to see that you know the, the community be, are aware, can be rest, mm. uh, you know, rest assured that there we have a very very good security apparatus in Australia. yeah from across a raft of organizations
2: well that that only comes from the education like yourselves and other people are putting out there you know i mean these red flags are raised because people are actually saying hey here's the loophole here's how we close it up and this is the essential reason why services like yours need to be applied in a lot of these agencies i've been going deep into the weeds again on dave Grosman's books on on combat i read it quite a while back like many many years ago and I'm, I'm reading it again, and he talks about the essential need for training. Like he goes into how our government agencies and law enforcement, these are the people that really need access to good and ongoing training because it's not enough just to do a little bit and then release these people onto the street. You know, I mean, we're seeing problems in law enforcement all over the world. When you do cap it and it does become a budgetary issue that you've got a pencil sharpener that's sitting behind a desk saying, oh, you know, we need to work on the budget, but they're producing people that don't have access to enough training. Whereas, you know, like intelligent government agencies are looking at this and going, no, our men and women really need more. You know, the community needs a better standard of guardian that's actually out there. And if we are trying to produce the sharp end of the sword, we've got to put the work into these people. They really It's a debt that they owe not just the service people are out there, but the community at large as well.
3: To add to that part that we do provide live agent uh, as it is manufactured by the bad guys Mm -hmm. to allow the dog the best chance of finding what could be out there being manufactured in a backyard.
1: Right. Yeah. So you guys, the course uh, that you would be able to run, uh, you know, we have government listeners sort of all over the world. Looks like you turn up, they have all their dogs there that necessary you manufacture HME right there on the spot. They can then imprint their dogs on that and you can be there for as long as necessary to imprint, conduct searches, proof behaviors if that's what they've got the time for. Yep. And then at the end of that, you blow it up and it's it's gone. But, and their dog is now trained on that odor. And, you know, periodically, however often that they would conduct retraining on a particular like odor. Us bring us, can
3: bring us back and we'll provide that. Yeah. Because to make some of the explosives, to, uh, we do manufacture some explosives that you could put a UN number. Mm-hmm. But to give it the way that it is just that raw explosive, we can't put the tagant with it. That is the expectation. Uh, so, and that, that's even if we did that, then we like if we were selling them those raw explosives, which we don't have the license to do, we would have to put a tagant with it to sell it to meet uh, the government requirement now that they've signed up to the United Nations Basic Explosive Convention. And that then changes the odour picture because now you've got two, you've really made a fox mixture out of a monomolecular mixture. Mm-hmm. And that is, does that now mean the dog's going to find it without the target?
1: Yeah. So it introduces another variable. Yep. Yeah. There's
0: another small part, you know, along this theme, which is you run the training and some people historically have said, oh, we've done your course now, you know, we'll try and run some stuff in house. They didn't say that to us, but that's what they were planning. And we try and give enough information now so that people realise if they are going to try and do any of what we show on their own, what could happen? (laughs) And we we do specific, (laughs) you know, demonstrations of of how sensitive things are and how simple household or industrial chemicals with incorrect compatibility can either start a fire
2: or explode. Or detonate. Mm. Yeah. Like I said to you, there's a few things that were really eyebrow-raising and harrowing in my mind. You know, like when I looked at the complexity of it and the sensitivity of some of it, I thought, holy shit, you know, this stuff is like it's some really intense and serious things. I took away a whole new level of respect for it. Just something, you know, sidestepping for a little bit of time when you were talking about targets before Q.
1: Just explain what that is because if we still have any of our normal listeners still listening <laughs> that aren't interested in said detection that explain – one of the things we probably haven't explained is that explosives aren't explosives. There's a million, well not a million, there's many, many, many different types of explosives and essentially an explosive is a solid or a liquid that when detonated becomes a rapidly expanding gas, right? And then when you think of shrapnel flying around, that's what you put with the explosive, right? Mm-hmm. So nails and whatever that will go in an IED, but a bomb is like, it's that's casing or a grenade, for example, it's the casing and the, the, all bearings within it that do the damage the rapidly expanding gas is just that. Yes. Uh I mean rapidly expanding
2: gas can do your mischief do damage by itself, well.
1: right? Yeah. But then the target, go
2: ahead and explain. Well, so hang on, let, let we're going to talk about the target. Let's talk about LPG as the target because
3: you educated me okay. right there on the spot and that's
2: where I got like I had uh, a aha. Uh-huh so moment.
3: To just see what the tagging is, it was a United Nations way of overcoming terrorist organisations using explosives that have a very low vapour pressure. And so the vapour pressure is the off-gassing of explosives, to put it in a simple term. And so for our nose, we all can smell LPG gas. But if you actually smell LPG gas without a tagant, you can't smell it. It's odourless to us. Right. So they put this tagant with it. That, and that's what we smell, but it's a smell that we never olfactory saturate with. So we'll always continually smell it. And that's what they chose that one because we never get overwhelmed by that smell that we can continually right, smell Right, okay. It. So that was a tag that they put with that so that if it's leaking, humans can know that there's gas leaking. So the human olfactory system kind of works like you can get used to something. I think, yeah. So right? you, someone comes in with like Glenn's aftershave on, so overpowering when we turned up today. <laughs> <laughs> That by now we wouldn't be smelling it, right? Yeah, and so and it, this is
1: why people with bo don't know they uh, have no, bo, yeah, because
3: they it sneaks up on them. <laughs> it's been over. <laughs> the nose has been oversaturated, and same with and and that's because our olfactory bulb is constantly getting covered with uh, the air moving through our nose, right? And the odor molecules get to sit on it. Unlike a dog that has to direct the odor molecules onto its olfactory bulb to get that. Mm-hmm. Um, both through their sniffing technique and they also through their exhaling can clear their olfactory bulb where we can't as much although a dog can still get saturated with an odor so what the united nations plastic explosive convention thing that came up and i'm using the wrong names there because i can't remember the exact name of the convention off the top of my head made it so that they could put something that would smell on top of something that doesn't smell that much yep and so, for example, of a explosive might have a vapour pressure in that parts per billion or parts per trillion, and there's explosives out there like that. They put a tagant in there that's in parts per ten. Right. So it's easy to so smell. So it
1: stinks, but you're not smelling the explosive. You're, no, you're, you're smelling, smelling
3: the tagant. Yeah. And um, But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to find... By putting that with the odor, now you've made a a fuel oxidizer mix in a way, like you've now added two molecules to make an odor pitcher, Mm -hmm. as opposed to we want a dog to find a particular molecule or a particular fox mixture, take away all the other strip it down to the odors. And so it would be a non-target odour yeah. in a way, um, or if it's in a plastic box or whatever, that's a non-target odour. Mm. If you're presenting your odour that way every time, that becomes, you're reinforcing that as being what you want the dog to find. Yeah. Which then can cause problems later when it doesn't find what you think it's going to find.
1: Yep. So, a dog trained exclusively on commercial explosives can find commercial explosives only. It's unlikely ever to find a homemade explosive unless it's trained specifically on it.
0: We can't ever give def- definite answers. Yeah, of course, like that.
1: because it, you um, don't know exactly. It's exactly yes, the, same no. the, the dog's criteria. Yeah. Like he Be, might, for yeah. whatever reason, decide. Based
0: it. on our evidence, based on the clients that have come on our courses, w- we can say you know, fairly confidently that if you imprint a dog on the rawest, simplest explosive odor, it has a much, much, much better chance of finding that odour anywhere else it is.
2: All day, every day. Generally
0: speaking. Mm. So so there's nothing categorical, you know, about this. It, it, there's so many variables that we, we could never say that with certainty.
2: It, it, it's an interesting thing, you know, like Pat and I have talked about this before, and this is one of the frustrations that he has in scent detection work. Whereas I find it quite fascinating and I, I'm intrigued by it. And I know a lot of people around the world are as well is the picture of scent contamination. And what I often tell people, if you can take a signature odour right back to its rawest basics, then you're going to make the job very easy for the dog to understand what its reinforcer is, what it's actually connected to and attributed to. But once you start melding that, and it's like when you meld primary colours together, they become a whole new colour. And this is what you're saying to the dog. And the dog goes, well, you know, this this is a new thing to me. You know, whereas you're saying, well, it's not, you know, it was, it was red and green, but the dog goes, well, now it's now it's a new color. You know, it's become something different, but you haven't become aware of that. And this is why people need to be very thoughtful and considerate and cautious when they're doing scent detection work and they're not contaminating odors or have a perception because perception is very, very powerful in these type of things. So what it needs to be is more conclusive than perceptive. In the proofing phase, you want to contaminate your odours, though. You do in the proofing phase, absolutely. I mean, part of the proofing phase is making it difficult for the dog Mm. and adding degrees of difficulty, but it's the same thing. It's, you know, like you don't take a kid in kindergarten and throw them into a college arena and just say, you know, you need to get an A in this class.
3: So, for example, for my dog, I put $5 notes and then in a cached area and then poured citronella oil all over it, all around the place, which... That's what's put in bark collars because yeah. it's meant to be mm-hmm. adversive. Now, yep. I want you to search. And she still indicated. So she searched through an adversive odor because she really wanted a high bounce ball to find what was out there. Yep. And that's really what you want to do is start to give them exactly what you want them to find and mm-hmm. then move to land let's present it in different locations. Yeah,
1: as Bart would say, fight for the behavior.
3: Yep, yep. Go through something
1: you don't like to get to tell me about something that will lead to something yep. that you do. Which like.
2: is going to happen in well real world scenarios. And this is something that Jerry Bradshaw pointed out a while ago on the show is that a lot of people get stuck in an elementary phase of training where they start working on tubes and so forth. And, you know, a lot of the training is done like that, but that's an elementary phase in training. This is something that we want the dogs to learn from and be able to control how the odor works for us. But the real world application is out there on the street, you know, and as difficult as it needs to be because, Let's face it, people who are going to all the trouble of importing drugs or making explosives aren't going to make it easy for you. They're going to do everything they possibly can to make the scenario as difficult as they can because it's product they either want to kill people or they want to make money out of it. Either way, it's something that they're going to disguise. So in real-world scenario, when we're talking about you know capability of the dog – Yeah, we have to teach the dog in an elementary enclosure, but incrementally we have to phase the dog up to a standard where the dog is out on the street and goes, I don't care what's in my way. I don't care what this person is trying to disguise it with. I know – you know, like it's the same thing with us. When we look around a room, we know, you know, like there's a laptop sitting on the table now. We can see the laptop sitting on a table that's full of a lot of other things, but it's it's a signature piece of furniture that's in the room. We actually identify with it. We know. So if somebody who knows what a laptop is and you say to them, go in the room and find the laptop, they'll walk in and go, there it is. And that's what we need to teach the dog too. Ignore everything else, find the signature odor. That's what you're trained to do. Everything else is non-target. It will never lead to a reinforcer.
3: And it's back to your question: If I've trained my dog to find commercial, your dog will find what you trained it to find. Yeah, yeah. a dog is a product of its environment. And it, yeah,
0: and the when it comes to the explosives scent work, that's really only what, the only thing you want to imprint the dog on. Because if if it's a dual trained to find. Uh, narcotics or money. Don't get me started about that. The amount of people that say like that dumb shit. It is a, it is a Hollywood thing that a dog is just a find anything dog.
1: You know what I say to people? So I've had legit dog industry. People say that you can train narcotics and an explosive dog and they have a, a a sit for an indication on one and a down for an indication on the other. And then I say, I tell you, I've got a pretty highly trained... I, I like to think of myself as reasonably fucking intelligent, right? But like after this, I'm going to my physio and sometimes when he's going to crack my neck, he says, turn your head to the right and I turn to the left, right? <laughs> because I fuck up. I just make a tiny little error like that when he says, turn your head to the right and I go, my right or your right? And I turn it that way. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's you getting blown up when you think you're looking for heroin and, and it turns out to be an explosive because your dog just made a tiny little error. Like but no it? serious it? person, even if it were possible and it probably is possible, right? Like it's just a number of, at the end of the day, scent detection is that you've got a dog that searches and the odor that you've imprinted on is a command to indicate. That's it. That's as simple it is. And it, 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 then people say, what, you can't teach a dog like seven different commands to sit and six different commands to down. Of course I could do that, right? I could have that, but the risk is not worth the fucking reward. Like it is absolutely no one who has ever worked in Mm. the real world or knows anybody that's worked in the real world or isn't a moron (laughs) would consider training a dog that to find both. Mm. Absolutely never, ever, 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 ever. We
0: come across it often where very intelligent people, and they're usually in decision-making operational cycles and they, they, you know, they've moved jobs quite often and it's not that they don't know. It's just that they've only had a little bit of information and they're making deductions that.
1: Yeah. You know, I get all yeah. that from people. It's fine. But from like people who actually say they train those dogs, uh uh-uh. no, you don't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe you. It,
2: look, it, it would it's be – not worth the risk. It would be very easy to convince – and as you said, Coy, there are very intelligent people out there who are good decision makers and it would be very easy to convince them that that's the case yes. because that's not their level of expertise. So – You know, if they had somebody presenting a logical argument to them as to say, you know, like I teach a dog to sit for explosives and I teach the dog to down for narcotics, they might look at that and go, well, as a budgetary constraint, in order to control how much money we're spending, that actually makes logistic sense. You know, I might be able to do that. But then you get somebody who comes in and understands dog behavior and uses the example that Pat says, I'm an intelligent person. I, You know, I got told to turn my head left and went right. Well, when you look at that, you know, that presents an argument to you to think, fuck, I could blow up my team by having a dog indicate incorrectly on the day just because it ha- it gets a little bit of mind fuckery thinking about overshooting to the primary reinforcer and the, the whole team is gone or the, the handler is dead and the dog is dead.
0: And if you train, you know, for 20 years in an environment where you have zero threat from explosives and there's no recorded incidents and nobody has any issue at all, how do you know you're doing it wrong? That's right. You are led to believe that, hey, your shit doesn't stink because we've never had an incident. And though they are two different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing, you know, I guess we'll wrap up soon, but one thing I think is worth pointing out is the brainwashing that happens in all armies and police is that everybody's told they have the best training right? And it, like, if you're going to go into mortal combat with somebody else, it's important. You think that your training was <laughs> the best, right? Like, but that is a brainwashing that we all have. And so it can yep. be difficult to like, what you guys do is, is a different and most people. There isn't, I can't imagine there's many companies certainly in Australia that are doing what there's you're no doing one. and people would then say, why do I need that? Because I've got the best, like we're doing that. We're, we're killing it already. And I would say maybe not.
2: Think I think one of the, The conclusions to draw and I don't know if it was Plato or Socrates, but I know it was an ancient philosopher that says, all I know is I know nothing, you know, and I think sometimes that's the best mentality to have is don't be closed off to learning, at least considering other options in education. And that's, you know, like we're all educators, all of the people that are in the room now, our jobs are to educate people and even ourselves. The benefit of doing that is that we don't want to become one track on anything in life. It's important to develop a set of standards. Like if you've got good material, yes, it's important to develop a set of standards and not constantly be plaguing your mind with, oh, there's, there's better things out there. I don't know what I'm doing. You have to be confident in your ability at a certain point in time. But also consider that you could add to your repertoire of training to think, yeah, okay, I could add something in to make my message better so I could give it to the students in a a more um, digestible manner or whatever it may be. But I I often think about that now is that I'm certainly not the bastion of all knowledge and, I mean, I could even upgrade what I currently know and that's why I read and that's why I consider sitting down like I now and listening to what other people have to say. It's very important in my mind anyway.
0: I think it's probably one of the most important things that Q and I have learned in our five-year journey together is do not be the person that puts themselves out there as the know-all of everything on any topic because you can never be. You can never. There's no end to the yeah. the learning and the knowledge. And as long as we are humble enough to recognize that, yes, we, we know a lot more in this area than what our students were, teach it in a way that helps them, but don't paint yourself to be You know, because that's just setting yourself up for failure. You're Mm. you're putting yourself in a position where someone's going to come back one day and go, hey, you know, when you said this about that, well, you were wrong.
3: Yep, totally. So we've got to constantly keep learning ourselves to keep delivering.
1: So we do have explosive detection handlers from all over the world listening. How can people get in contact with you guys if they're interested in – Getting in touch, running a course. They can push it through their chain of command, but what's the first step for them? How do people get in contact with you? We've
0: got a, a comments part on our webpage. They can just lodge a simple inquiry if they like. What mm-hmm. is that webpage? It's Red Team Training Solutions, and it's .com, not .com. A-U.
2: So it's .com. Just .com. Yeah. Yep.
0: We can put a link up on-
2: Social media or just website?
0: Uh, just LinkedIn. We've got a, a business page there, mm-hmm. but that's pretty much the limit of it. Yep. It's hard for a lot of what we do- It's hard to put useful stuff on a web page that doesn't step over the line. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Agreed. Yeah. It's one of those things, people that know you know you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, fellas, thanks for taking the time. It's been a fun talk. Yeah, really appreciate
2: you coming on the show, guys. I know it's a lot of sensitive material, but, you know, like I said, it was really eye-opening and I think that there's government agencies out there and I believe that they should at least have a conversation with you.
1: All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you uh, extra content. You could pay up to, I don't know, a million dollars if you wanted. Yeah. you get to have that. <laughs> <laughs> or you could buy some cool merch, jump on a teespring, get yourself a t-shirt. That also uh, helps us keep the lights on. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to jump into Facebook and write in our discussion group, the mm-hmm. Canine Paradigm discussion group. Or if it's of a personal nature, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, Music.